Hi guys, uh, welcome back to another episode of EBSTA Sales Leadership All Access. Uh, super happy to, to be here today leading this, uh, leading this session. My name is Andy Culligan. I am the CMO of a company called Leadfeeder. Uh, super happy, as I mentioned, to be here working with EBSTA on this series. This is the second of the series. Um, and today we're gonna be focusing on uh, pipeline and looking at which deals to prioritize and actually probably more importantly, uh, which ones to drop. So uh, the topic of today is getting it right sooner and knowing which deals to prioritize. So we'll be looking at areas in terms of when you have a pipeline, where do you see the risk and opportunity in there? How do you qualify out those opportunities that are maybe uh, not worth your time? And how do you get rid of those tire kickers that are coming in just to have a look? On top of that, we'll be looking at how to coach or prioritize those deals or, or coach your team to prioritize those deals. Um, and then also we'll be looking at how to empower reps to own their own sales forecasts. And um, following that, we'll be taking a look into the future and understanding what the next couple of months uh, have on board, and then also a bit of a long-term look into the future within the next year. So today I'm super happy to be uh, having a great panel of experts here with me, um, and I will give them a, a quick introduction. Um, and I hope I do them all justice because I really have to say this is a great panel of experts that we have here today to be able to talk about Pipeline. Uh, first and foremost, I'd like to introduce uh, Tamara McMillan, who's a board advisor to the CSO UK. She's a former executive director of sales at Virgin Media Business and a great advocate for diversity, inclusion and purpose driven leadership. So welcome today, Tamara. It's great to really have you here. Thank you. Uh, I, <laughs> on top of that, we have Michael Meehan, who's a regional VP of sales at OpenText. Um, he's got over 30 years sales and management experience um, and he's worked with large and startup software companies bringing them from startup all the way to scale up all the way to enterprise so again big welcome today michael and it's great to have you here thanks for having me and uh, next up we have george arabian uh, george is vp of sales at absolute data analytics um, he special he specializes in scaling revenues for enterprise or b2b startups um, all the way up from, from startup, all the way, all the way up to enterprise, as I mentioned before. Um, and his true fo uh, focus is getting things from that startup phase all the way up to exit. Right now, as I mentioned before, he's working for an AI-driven analytics uh, provider, which is called Absolute Data. George, really happy to have you here today. Great to be here. Thanks, Andy. Uh, next up, we have Daniel Hebert, who is the VP of Sales at Pro uh, Proposify. Um, Daniel, actually, like myself, comes from a marketing background. I actually come from a sales background. I found myself in the marketing position. Daniel's a bit of the opposite in that respect, but Daniel comes from a marketing background and has found himself in a, in a sales position and has, has led a couple of sales orgs over the past years. And um, he's also working, as I mentioned before, at Proposify, which is a company which has scaled up in recent years. Um, and uh, Daniel, really happy to have you here, mate, and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Great to be here. Okay, guys. So uh, as we're talking about, um, you know, pipeline and how we can find the risk opportunities within our pipelines, all of you guys, like amongst everybody on this call today, I don't know how much experience we have in terms of years, but there's quite a bit. So everybody has led teams or has been in a team, has started off in a position as a sales rep. But as if 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 you're looking at this from a leadership perspective, um, how are you identifying risk? and opportunity within your current pipeline. And we'll start with Tamara on this one. Thanks again, Andy, for having me on the call. And it's a pleasure to be here with all of you. Um, you know, it's so important to talk about risks 
in the pipeline. I think, uh, you know, it would be wonderful if we could just take people at their word and what what is in there is real, but unfortunately history and experience teaches us otherwise. So I'd say one of the key areas I like to look at is the top of the funnel. I think this is where the magic begins and often where um, a lot of the poor work happens. So many things get into the funnel that never should have been there in the first place. They've not been well qualified. They're not our target customer. They don't have a need for the kinds of things we sell or the types of um, outcomes we like to generate with our customers. So I think a key area of risk is looking at the top of the funnel and making sure people aren't just dumping in the phone book. Um, and also that, you know, how have you defined what is qualified? You know, what is a qualified lead? Does it mean you left them a voicemail? Um, did you send them a brochure? Or have you actually had a meaningful conversation where you know that there's a need, there's a budget, um, you're aware of who the stakeholders are, etc. I think the other risk that we can see in the pipeline is as we start looking at activity levels and, and not activity, meaning I've sent them a bunch of stuff and I keep calling them, but you know, what EBSTA themselves talks about is engagement. So how engaged are these customers with us um, on this journey and in this discussion? Is it a two-way street or are we constantly, you know, talking at them or are they coming to us asking for information, you know, asking the hard questions, pushing us on how our products and services are able to deliver? Um, I think those things are, are really critical. And then, um, I've actually lost my thought on the third one, I have to be honest. So I think I've said enough there. <laughs> There's many ways, but that's, that's okay. that I'd offer. That's okay. I think like you raised a very good point there around um, the the engagement points. And as Ebster mentioned quite often, you know, it's all about engagement within opened opportunities or within within pipeline. Um, I think depending on the deal size or who you're selling to as well, there's a number of different personas you need to be selling into on on, a, on any deal. Typically there's research done that says, you know, you should be selling to probably six people on an account. That could be even more if you're dealing with enterprise and just uh that also brings an additional level of engagement there as well which you need to be taking a look at and from that perspective actually george I'd, I'd move to you on this one from an enterprise perspective what are the risks that you would see when looking at your pipeline and that goes to also having those six people to focus on whenever you're whenever you're running a, a, a an enterprise opportunity yeah thanks andy and again a pleasure to be here um, I, I will say that what we do in terms of the process um, is we established a very rigorous sales cycle, which is the steps from the beginning of the engagement all the way to proposal and close. In that sales cycle, there are key milestones that we identify that are a set of activities and actions that need to be taken at each step from pre-qualification all the way through what we call a qualified lead and then on through the process. The interesting part, it's a metrics driven process. So at each stage, there's a set of activities that are checked off. And then as importantly, there's a timeline that's defined that this process or this key, if you will, milestone is to be achieved within a set time frame. So for instance, to move from a qualified lead to a audit, what we call a data audit, or 
a, uh, if you will, proposal, which is a series of steps, is defined by the, a specific time frame. If that time frame is not met at each stage in the enterprise sales cycle, we have an agile tool that puts a red flag up and we talk about it. And we say, what's holding this back? To Tamara's point, it could be that they weren't qualified in the first place. There wasn't a set of, if you will, drivers behind the conversation that would allow us to move in a timely and efficient manner to the next step in the process. So we're constantly reviewing that sales cycle. We are constantly reviewing those that are delayed or stuck. And we're having those ongoing conversations with each of the field and inside sales team members. And we do that both individually and as a team. There's a lot of information there, Andy, but I hope that gives you an indication of how we deal with it. Absolutely, it's a, it's a mix to me from what you've just said, there is timeline and process with, with engagement mixed in there as well. So if, if, uh, if, if certain engagements aren't met within a certain time frame within those deals, then there's obviously alarm bells being rung there and saying, hey, this is, yeah, uh, I, I, there's I, problems there. Understood, and also understood. Tied... Michael... Sorry. Sorry, George, continue. Go right please. Ahead. please, please, George, continue. No, I was just saying what we are able to do is, is then, if you will, translate that into a very specific forecast at each stage in the sales cycle, which gives us uh, additional visibility. Sorry, Andy, please continue. No problem at all. Thank you for that. Um, Michael, um, at OpenText, what are you guys doing to ensure that you're taking the risk out of your, out of your pipeline? So th thanks for the question, Andy. Um, I thought that Tamara and George's answers uh, really encompassed a lot of the same things that I would talk about. We're a very process-oriented uh, organization, um, and we certainly have different tools to help capture um, you know, risks at certain stages in, in the sales cycle. So like George, a lot of the same things that they have in place at his organization, we also have in place. We do utilize salesforce.com and a, kind of a scoring system as we go through the sales process. Um, the other thing that I haven't really heard mentioned, and it's a soft thing, is the gut uh, in this, right? So we're dealing with people, so. And you're dealing with process and, you know, a lot of that, and I think it goes back to Tamara's comments around engagement. Um, when you have a client that's engaging with you, um, you also at some point, and I always ask my reps this, what is your gut on this? And, you know, it's not to be underestimated. I, I think the gut is, is, you know, tells a lot along with the process and understanding where you where you are and what those red flags may be. I mean, so, the, good, um, the good is super interesting, Michael. Like this is something that I don't think there's, because we're so data-driven nowadays, I feel as though people have lost that gut feeling for things. And typically, if you look at entrepreneurs, they make series of series of, of gut feelings. And if it wasn't for their good feelings, they probably wouldn't be successful today. And um, so th that's a super interesting point you raised there. Yeah, I, you know, it's kind of old school and haven't been doing this for such a long time, but it's something that dates back to 
the beginning of time, right? I mean, you know, people, you know, ran, you know went with their gut feel in case, you know, uh, a tiger was chasing them or something. So uh, I think the same, <laughs> and the other thing is you actually get some real feedback from your AEs uh, because numbers tell you a lot, but don't, don't tell you the full story. And can I add a comment there, Andy? I think it's I think it's a really good point because you know we are really data driven, and and I think that we need to be data driven. But a lot of that depends on whether or not we've defined the right data to collect in the first place, and also how good the data is that we've received. So you know when we can balance out the gut, <clears throat> that's important, provided we can make sure that um, you know salespeople are notoriously optimistic. So, you know, hope is not a strategy. So I think it, it is that balance, isn't it, between essentially George, I know you live in a very data world and then, and Michael, you're right. I mean, we, you know, we do have intuitions over time. We can read people, we can get a sense of um, what what they want to do versus what they're going to actually do. And so um, I always find it really interesting how you balance those two things because you, you kind of can't go with one or the other, but together they make a really powerful um, piece of information that we can drive the business with. Maybe I could yeah, add this, to uh, Michael's do. and uh, Tamara's point. We have a, a very specific uh, regarding the gut. We identify because we're typically bringing new technologies or innovations into the enterprise. So we have a profile that we call, are they an innovator in terms of the decision makers that we're dealing with? And is that ability to take risk and so much of that is offline discussion. So much is that, do they fit this profile of an innovator? And, uh, you know, we have an extreme uh, contrast because we also have Amazon as an account. And I could tell you categorically that the types of mid-level and senior managers that we deal with there are extraordinary in the culture that they encourage risk and take risk. and um, obviously, we deal with Fortune 500, and the contrast there is so distinct that we've developed a profiling system that allows us to profile that gut call. Are they risk takers? Are they willing to drive the initiative through the enterprise approval process? And again, we have a, a quite an amazing metric there or contrast between the folks we deal with at a company like Amazon versus Fortune 500. So I'm just complimenting Michael and Tamara's point there. Makes perfect sense. Thank you for that, George. Just on that point around culture and creating that culture for taking risk or for uh for that gut feeling you know it's a, it, it there is something about uh in sales is about one of the key things that i find is is you need to have a good feeling for qualifying but an even better feeling for qualifying out right so i think that gut feeling also comes into sales teams as well so daniel like how do you at proposify create a culture of keeping people focused on those high potential deals good question um First of all, I want to say to Mara, the what you said around hope is not a strategy. Awesome. I we actually we actually have we call it the skipper code. It's it's basically our sales team code of conduct, and that's the number one item on our skipper code. Is like hope is not a strategy because I I completely agree with you. Um, which brings me to to kind of I want to 
interject and counterbalance Michael's point here too around the gut. Um, I think gut is fine if you're trained to listen to your gut. So if you spent time um, training your reps on active listening skills in nonverbal cues, then that you can use as a gut instinct because most calls are done on Zoom and you can see the prospect anyways, and you can hear stuff of how they're see, uh, saying things, or you can see facial reactions. If you've trained your reps on being able to recognize that, then sure, gut feeling is good. Beyond that, I would agree with George. It's like it's really around the data, uh, making sure the, the key milestones are being hit, um, tracking activity levels back and forth, like all of these different things. In in order to, so your question, Andy, was around like, how do we build a culture to keep our reps focused on the right deals? So we do this in, a, in different ways. Um, we we spent a lot of time uh, training our reps on on a sales methodology. We we use parts of uh, Sandler training and part of our own stuff, and kind of combine combine the two together. Um, so what we did was actually build in all of our methodology in our CRM, and that goes into every deal review, every pipeline review. So we actually call it the Sandler scorecard on the Opportunity View in Salesforce, and we have metrics to figure out how much of that scorecard is completed. And it does go through key things like what's their technical pain? What's their business pain, personal pain? Is there an identified timeline? Is there a critical event? Who are the competitors? Like all the key things that you need to know about a deal to understand whether or not the deal has a shot of happening um, are all in the CRM. So from a culture perspective, we bring that up in deal reviews. We bring that up in film reviews. We coach around this. So when a rep comes to me and says, hey, this deal is going to close on Friday. I'm like, okay, why? And it's like, I feel good about it. My champion said it was going to close. And then I start going through the real questions like, okay, what's the pain? Well, they want a Salesforce integration. Well, that's not a pain. That's a feature. That's a need. That's a want. What's the pain? Um, you know, what's the critical timeline for Friday? What happens if they miss that timeline? Um, is there a negative consequence on their business if they miss it? Um, who are you talking to? Right. If it's like if they tell me it's a single threaded deal, I'm like, you're no, there's no way you're going to sell a thirty thousand dollar contract on a single threaded deal with a champion. So there's a lot of that stuff that's just a culture of like comes back to that culture code that we have around like hope is not a strategy. And then the other one that we have is like be one percent better every day, week, month, year. Um, so between the two, we're always challenging each other, not because we're trying to create negativity around the deals. Um, Tamara actually mentioned this earlier too, around like, like reps are really optimistic about their deals. We want to make sure that we have our own internal gut check to make sure that their gut check is, uh, is accurate. So that's kind of the, how we build a culture is making sure that those things are talked about over and over and over again when you are talking about deals and that you're not talking about stories around the deals, you're constantly reinforcing what are the important facts that you need to know in order for that deal to close. That makes perfect so I sense, quick... I think, yeah. Go, Michael, go ahead. I'm sorry, Andy. I have a quick comment, uh, Daniel, on, on what you were saying. I think that um, collecting all these data points are, are really important. And I think it's a combination, if I wasn't clear earlier, of all of the above, right? There is no one size fits all. 
the other thing that comes into play, at least from my perspective, is what's the level of account executives that are on your team? Are they uh, folks that just moved from an ADR position? Are they new to sales? Is there more coaching required? Um, for my team, for example, I probably have an average tenure of 10 years in sales. So when you have a tenured team uh, that you could hold accountable, and they know you're going to hold them accountable from a culture perspective, um, if they say a deal is going to close on Friday, um, maybe they can't check all those boxes. But if they if these folks have a history of when they say something's going to happen, it's going to happen. You know that's the, kind of the balancing act. Um, because we do a lot of lot of deals, uh, a lot of transactions. We have two different businesses. One is transactional, and one is more subscription and enterprise. So I can't be on sixty five different deals in a given quarter. It's just impossible. So that's part of the trade offs that I deal with. It's can balancing I add also, with the Andrew. data. The data with the cost. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Tamara. You go on ahead. You go on ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think the other thing that I find that really helps focus the attention of sales um, is the hardest job, I think, in a company, which is compensation. And um, salespeople, you know, they, they do what they're paid to do and where we incentivize them. I think one of the challenges we have as businesses often we roll out new products or services, but we don't adjust our compensation. We just keep targets in place as opposed to trying to drive and reward the right types of behaviors. And um, I think it's also even the word about kind of valuing deals, how are you defining value in your business? Are you focused on profitability? You know, and are you driving compensation on profit or are you focused on market share? So are you actually incentivizing them to go after certain logos because they're gonna give you brand entrenchment in the market where maybe you don't have it? So um, I think we have to really be thoughtful that sometimes we ask our reps to do one thing, but we pay them to do something very different. And, and that in and of itself can have people focusing and valuing the wrong types of deals in their funnels instead of the ones that we need them to um, focus on. And then the second thing is sort of getting them to connect with the value of their own time. Because, you know, running around and, and trying to close any deal you can because you're focused on making plan, whilst I appreciate that because everyone wants to pay the rent and live their life, there's probably a smarter way to build the mousetrap. So I think it's the opportunity that managers and leaders have to work with their people to help them understand what that mechanism is and what it is for them individually. Because whilst we have processes and you know workflows and sales methodologies and people are individuals, they have certain ways that they sell and engage with customers, certain types of industries they perform best in, certain types of our products and services they sell better than others. So I think we can also appeal to that to help them focus. Uh, great point. Uh, I'd just add to that, uh, Tamara, I think the one thing I found um, in terms of uh, helping, if you will, organize the structure of a sales rep and really align that to a specific role that they have, which is new business development for those that love that hunt, if you will, the classic hunter profile, right? And and the, the good news there is that if you do that, you're gonna be very effective in filling that pipeline because that's what that particular profile and personality is geared towards. To your point, 
I also need to be careful when I do the incentive plans to make sure it's not just uh, revenue driven, it's activity driven. And so I try to do the incentives about activity as well as achieving the key top line or whatever the specific goal is. The interesting part about uh, the strategy as well is when you find somebody that's much more of a relationship oriented account executive, I find that typically in the enterprise, once we have an account, an account executive that what I call on land and expand, where they're all where they're focused on those longer term relationships. And if I could align that profile and put a land and expand strategy on a particular Fortune 500 account, I'm, I'm to be much more effective. Where I find I get a, a lot of inconsistent results when I'm not taking that step back and looking at the profile of the individual, hunter versus relationships, et cetera. So I have to constantly remind myself, is this alignment consistent with the profile of the team that I have? So that, I just wanted to add to uh, Tamara and Michael's point. I think just from, from everybody's points there, from, from Michael and George and Tamara and also Daniel, but I think there's quite a bit of, uh, like you're, you're dealing with quite a lot of deals um, and it's about being able to work smarter within those deals. So Tamara, you mentioned the word smart there, I think just a minute ago. Um, so like, it's, it's interesting to see that, like, and how it also plays back to this thing that we were talking about gut as well. I think to have gut, plus the data to back it up allows you to maybe work that much smarter, especially when you're dealing with so many numbers of deals, especially if you're dealing in different verticals, different industries. George, you just mentioned there as well that you have different styles of accounts that you'll go after where you go in and expand um, or you know run rate business, which you'll have somebody that will go in and get the run rate business in every day, whereas they're less of a focus to go in and expand with. So like we're dealing with massive quantities here. So. And just to, to go back to Michael's point as well, like just to, to reiterate, he did mention that this gut feeling comes as well to being informed from the data, I guess. Correct? Yes. Good. Absolutely. Okay, so so look, let's let's talk about, you know, we've we've spoken about having so many deals within the pipeline and then focusing smarter on them. But of course, even if we are smart about it. Um, and we, we focus on the deals that have the most value or uh, that have the most promise, there's still going to be an element of failure. You're not going to close everything that goes into pipeline. So how do you guys go ahead and, and help your teams to fail fast? So, you know, if you make a mistake, it, it, the typical thing is go fix it quickly. So make mistakes, but fix them quickly, right? Um, so we'll start with Daniel on this one. Daniel, like, how do you help the guys to, to, to fail fast? Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a good question. I, I always try to emphasize with the guys, like, um, you want to, like, you don't want to lose slow. That's the worst thing that can happen. If you lose slow, what happens is that your, your pipeline gets stuffy with deals that aren't going to close anyways. And you end up, um, inflating your pipeline and then all of a sudden you're, seeing yourself miss your number for two or three months in a row because you thought you had enough deals but you were holding on to them for whatever reason and you weren't really um, qualifying them out as the process goes through so i always say like discovery is a process to my team um, new information pops up all the time and then i also 
um, encourage them to look at the activity data and like not just the activity of what you're doing. Are you cranking up your activity as you're going through the process? Because we actually found that once you're past the demo and you're basically once you send the proposal, you want that activity level to go up like through the roof, right? Back and forth. So looking at the activity that's coming back, um, are they replying to your emails when you're sending your confirmation of, hey, this is what we discussed. Did I get this right? Are they replying back? If they're not, it's not a good sign, right? If they're trying to force you to skip a piece of or key milestone in your process, it's probably not a good sign. Um, if you're cranking up your activity and not getting your certification on the other side, you know, that's, that's a deal that's probably going to drag on. The same thing with like when you send a proposal, have they actually opened it up? Have they looked at every page or did they open it up and spent 40 minutes on the cover page, which means they have that on a second tab and they haven't actually made it to your pricing and your SOW and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Like if you don't know this information, what's going to happen is that you're going to feel good about the deal because the, it is a psychology thing. The more time you spend into a deal, um, the more likely you are to hold on to it, even though that you don't, that's not going to close. It's a psychology things as the sunk cost fallacy. And if you, if you don't see those signals, especially coming back to you from the prospect, then chances are the deal is not going to close most of the time. So you want to make sure that that activity is happening within a respectable margin of error of your average deal sales cycle. Um, if your sales cycle is suddenly like twice as long as right. you, you normally close your deals and that activity is not happening, it's probably time for you to negative reverse that contact and, you know, reach back out in whatever X amount of months or send it back to the BDRs for them to prospect because you're just keeping it in your pipeline and it's, it's not going anywhere. Right. That's very good points there, Daniel. Actually, it's funny. So I don't work for EBSTA. I just want to make that very well known here. I, uh, but everything that you just mentioned there is basically covered by what they do. So that, you know, that, that back and forth uh, about, okay, is, is somebody, are, are people responding to the engagements in which you're, which you're getting in your pipeline? Are you engaging with enough people within that account? Are those engagements meaningful? Are they coming back within your sales cycle? All of those different things. It's actually covered by the EPSA project. And as again, I don't work for EPSA, so, but uh, super interesting that you mentioned those things. Tamara, from your side, so, just interested to hear. Sorry, sorry, Michael, you're going ahead. Uh, oh, sorry, uh, Tamara. Um, what I was going to comment on and what I see quite often is it's kind of dependent on where the where the individual seller is with their pipeline coverage as well. I think the folks that have really shaky pipelines tend to keep things alive longer um, because they have nothing else to back it up. And that's always a challenge um, in, in looking at it. One of the other things I look at in my business is how long has this deal been sitting in Salesforce? You know, when I start seeing things that are sitting there for 120 days, 300 days, 600 days, you know, you, you really have to start looking at, and I'm sure we've all dealt with the can being kicked down. You know, it's the end of the quarter, the deal slips. It doesn't slip for a week or two, it slips to the end of the following quarter. 
Um, so, you know, really keeping your eyes open for those kinds of things that, that happen. Now, granted, sometimes there's a good story behind it happening, COVID being one of them, uh, but they all can't fall into that category. Um, so those are the things that I, I look out for. We also have a, um, we, we've done some, some trending on our on-demand business and noticed that um, if the deal doesn't close in the first 60 days, our chances of closing the deal drops by like 80%. So those decisions, uh, we sell into the legal community, both in-house legal and law firms. They have a hot case that they need to, you know, basically run through our system to, to skinny it and cull it down before they give it to outside counsel. Those have real deadlines. The court imposes them. It either happens or it doesn't happen. It's very binary. So when you see something like that last and you're 75 days into it, it's it's a good indicator that, you know, they went with someone else or uh, the case settled. Um, so those are the things that I look at versus doing an on-prem traditional enterprise deal where those take a year or maybe 18 months. So it's that kind of give and take. Just just on that michael just while because you mentioned something that was that was interesting there around uh the ownership for reps because i mean i i don't think i've ever come across a sales team that doesn't have at least one rep that's all that's that's over promising right this is this is classic you know there's always something that's in the pipe that you say i don't know but that rep is there because they've managed to close the big deals before in the past and there's always maybe one or two that you're not certain of what are you doing to give to, to, to give more accountability or get that rep onto more accountability for what they're putting into the pipeline? Yeah, I mean, I think is, is all you can problem? do. Sorry, sorry Michael, sorry, please. Uh, George, um, I mean, when, when someone is constantly behind the eight ball and, you know, basically promising deals that aren't coming in, I think it's just um, it's our job as leaders to sit them down and to break it down. I mean, that's where you really have to break it down and, you know, ask really hard questions and either get it out of the forecast altogether uh, and have them agree that it needs to come out of the forecast um, or look at definitive steps that need to happen. That's typically where I step in um, to, to deals itself where, you know, I'll, I'll ask for a meeting with their executives and ask really hard questions, you know, kind of good guy, bad guy, not really bad, but, you know, just, I'm not as emotionally charged by it. So I take a different approach. Uh, and you typically get, you know, when you talk to an executive, they'll tell you what's going on. I mean, I don't think their intent is to waste anybody's time. For yeah, sure. And I'll compliment sure. uh, Michael's point there. I. I have an approach on forecasting, which uh, which goes down from a top-down perspective, where you're able to then use that from a management perspective. But to Michael's point and Daniel's is, and, and the team's point, I do a bottoms-up forecast on those deals that are not moving from one stage to another or are stuck there for a, a longer time than what we've established as the metrics, if you will for the pipeline and I'll do a bottoms up. So I actually transfer the ownership to the individual rep. And then I say, I want you to do a bottoms up 
take a look. This is what the number is. And then how are you getting there? And we want to do it by account by account. And to Michael's point, there's sometimes uh, an area where it's quite apparent looking at it from the outside in that they haven't covered or a conversation that hasn't happened, particularly at a, a decision maker level. And that's where I'll typically step in or bring a, a subject matter expert in to help with that conversation and get it either on or off the forecast. But the ownership for those bottom-up forecasts is with each of the individual reps, and there's a lot of information that comes from those discussions. It's very good points, George. And just to go back to a point you mentioned earlier on that as well, I guess your timeline and process there and different engagements happening across that timeline play a big role for you there when you, when you want an overview of what's happening on those opportunities, correct? Exactly. Exactly. That's super. Tamara, from your side, uh, how do you encourage accountability um, when people are, are, have, are putting forward a pipeline? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I guess I'm gonna take it a little bit differently. And well, there's two ways. One, I do think that it's important that we provide um, sufficient data to reps so that they can understand not just the pipeline, but what their actual performance is like, and and sort of treat them like general managers of the business that we've asked them to run, or the you know the the territories we've asked them to manage, or what, what have you. And I think oftentimes we only focus on the pipeline and we don't look at, you know, what's their training and development? What are their skills? What's their individual close rate? I mean, we always have, a, you know, a company-wide or team-wide KPIs, but what's that individual's ability to perform? You know, how good are they at qualifying customers, understanding their gut, reading the tea leaves so that um, maybe they need a bigger pipeline cover? Maybe they actually need less. Maybe they're they're better, and so you know, let's not burden them in the wrong areas. And what are the skills that they need to be able to do their job better? And I think when you start to empower them with understanding their own behaviors, their ability to succeed, what their gaps are—is it knowledge on the product? Is it understanding how to tell stories about customer outcomes that compel people to want to talk to you instead of focusing on pricing features and benefits? I think if you get if you empower people with those sorts of things they'll begin to make better decisions about their pipeline and failing fast. And they'll ask what I think is one of the most important questions in the sales cycle is what happens to your customer if they do not do this now? What's the, what is the threat scenario? Because if they don't have one, they're not going to, then they're not really incentivized to buy, even if they have budget, even if it's on the priority list, like, is there anything catastrophic? Is it going to cost them money? Are they going to lose market share? Are they going to not be able to meet customer demand? You know, is the product not going to roll out on time? What will happen if they don't do this? And if they don't have the answer to that question, then maybe they shouldn't be working on that deal or they need to go and find out because a compelling event is one of the most important things, I think, for people to, to be aware of to help drive their customer's business because we're not going to drive the customer to make a decision. They will drive themselves to make a decision based on the fact that they have a need that without meeting it, there will be a problem or an opportunity mm. missed. So I don't know if that resonates with you guys, but, um, and I think the other thing is that's a great point. Very good point. Um, strategic Absolutely. planning is really important. We often work on opportunities. Well, what about way before the opportunities come up? Are you being intentional about, 
which customers you're going after and in which quarter? Have you have you stopped and entered into that black space where you get some free thinking and you go, who are the customers I want this quarter? What's a logo I'd be proud to win? Where do I know things are happening? Who should I be talking to? Who do I want to talk to? Where did I lead the conversation last? What did they tell me before? Um, because we get sometimes too short-sighted and working the opportunity right now and that's busy work and it's important it's got to happen but we can't forget to be strategic even with transactional sales there's a strategy about how we're going to market and approaching the market and i think that's the other way to help people fail fast be more intentional i, I couldn't point. agree with you more there but there was there's one thing around that the account-based selling approach i i don't feel there's enough companies that are actually doing i think a lot of people think that they're doing it so account-based marketing, account-based sales, I come across this quite a bit myself from the account-based marketing perspective that, oh yeah, we're doing account-based marketing, oh, for sure. I say, okay, what does your total addressable market look like? And they say, my what? And if you haven't got that account list, as you mentioned there, tomorrow, like what are, what are my ideal accounts that I wanna win in this Q or this H, then you're sort of gonna be chasing your tail a little bit. And it's very hard to be winning the right business if you're not chasing the right business. So uh, yeah. super interesting. There was also, yeah, like you'd mentioned, sorry, George, you going ahead? No, I just, sorry, Andy, I didn't mean to cut you off. You are, and Tamara's point in it too, is account-based, uh, what I call account-based approach to sales is a combination of doing what I call that critical nurturing process, which is educational. So it's very content driven initially when the content or the educational nurturing part of the sales cycle is then through a response is then, if you will, to that content, then we transfer it over to the sales team. But that nurturing, that content is a critical piece of it. And what we do is we focus on an account-based marketing approach that leverages content across different channels, including LinkedIn. And then as that content, that nurturing, that education, because a lot of it is around innovation, new ways of doing things, to Tamara's point, is it critical to your business? Uh, for instance, digital transformation is becoming less of an option, much more of a reality right now. So we're doing a lot of education around that. But once it's triggered, it then goes to the sales team. So we've done our job initially through content to educate. Now the rigorous process takes over more around helping them make a decision around what is the pain point you're trying to address. And so I just wanna say an account-based marketing is a combination and a way that sales and marketing come together, at least in our organization. It's very much a collaborative approach. I fully agree there. I think there's been a couple of things mentioned and also by, by Michael, yourself, uh, and Tamara, just in the past couple of minutes, just a couple of things that really struck with me. It was around this uh, education piece. So I found this year has been really important from an education nurture piece because maybe people aren't ready to put their hand in their pocket so quickly, especially in the past six months. Um, there's also, I still think though that people do have budgets available if you can make that compelling event known to the prospect. So if you're able to identify that threat to the prospect's business and you're able to you're able to solve that for them, I still think that people are gonna be willing to put their hands in their pockets. And I think organizations that are able to do that right now are 
performing very well. And that sort of brings us to like our last, our, our last part of this in, in that we'd look towards the future a little bit. So let's take short-term future and then somewhat a bit of a long-term approach. If we look at like, let's say the next three months versus the next year, Daniel, where do you think uh, things are going from a, from a pipeline creation perspective, from identifying risks and opportunities within the pipeline? It's a loaded question. It's hard. I wish I had a, a magic eight ball. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm with you, Dan. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. The, the the reality is the like the landscapes change a lot. Like a lot of field sales can't operate the way they they did. Like we we have a lot of field teams coming to us now because all of a sudden they have to equip their field reps with. Um, you know, digital documents and e-signatures and all that stuff, because it's not just that the the seller process has changed, like having to sell from home for most companies. It's also the buyer process has changed. Like the tools that you have in an office are different. Um, so for example, like you can't scan documents and sign them anymore because a bunch of people don't have printers and scanners at home. So that changes the way you do business. So you have to understand that from a pipeline perspective, there's there's a lot of forces that are changing the way that just business is being done and how people are buying. So if you're not looking at full visibility in terms of data and metrics across the entire cycle from lead to close, which a lot of companies usually don't do a, a good job looking at data between, you know, right after the demo to close, most of data investments are done at the top of the funnel. You're going to miss out on some opportunities and some deals because you just need a full window into your, your pipeline. And you know, stuff like face-to-face -face meetings don't happen anymore. So, and, and I'm going to come back to the gut feel. I, I feel like I'm picking on Michael here, but there are certain things that you just don't do anymore because you're not in the office shaking hands with people and you have to have a different mechanism to understand whether or not there's validity to that deal. So it's important to have way more training for your reps. It's important to make sure that all the things that are critical for a deal to understand. So like Tamara said around like, identifying compelling event is the compelling event written in a field in your Salesforce opportunity where when you do deal reviews, you can see it there. Like, are you equipping your reps to take the right notes in your CRM? And then what's all those data points that you can figure out back and forth to understand whether or not there's actual activity happening on the deal. Um, I think that's where it's like, it's heading for the next 12 months. Like there's, there's no real way around it. Thanks, Daniel. I've been frantically taking notes here, by the way, while you've been speaking, <laughs> just based on the, the crystal ball. I know it's very difficult in the current environment to, to see to the future, but just before we ask, I, I asked one of our, one of our other uh, attendees here a question. I just ask if anybody has any questions to so please put them into the chat now so that we'd be able to answer them. I'm just very wary of people's time here. And I know that we're coming towards the end. But, uh, and if the questions then appear in the chat box, uh, we can answer them accordingly. But uh, George, you mentioned the crystal ball there before and uh, when we're talking about the next three to three to 12 months. From your perspective, what do you think sales leaders should be prioritizing? You know, I think what has happened for us is that we had to revisit the sector 
um, that because we had a broad sector approach to how we would uh, develop our business. And obviously, with the type of uh, a dramatic shift in, for instance, travel, hospitality, um, we had to then take a step back and revisit the business by sector by sector. And as you can imagine, we've expanded in areas such as retail in a much more significant way. So we had to take a sector approach, particularly given the dramatic shift in market, uh, as well as in consumer demand. The other thing uh, I think area that we really focused on is going back to the basics with an account-based approach. Given these sectors, we want to have a very specific nurturing as well as sales-oriented um, holistic approach to these set of accounts. And then the thing that we paid attention to was what I call conversion metrics. To Michael Daniels and the team's points, are those metrics, those conversions to move from one stage to the other happening? And so we've spent much back to the data, and a lot of it is the gut call too, because the metrics will indicate for us, we're bringing a new way of doing business, what I call a C-level sales, right? And so are we taking a bottoms up and a top down approach to the accounts? So in some cases, the sales leaders will take that top down approach and the account teams will take the bottom up approach. Are we coordinating? And are those conversion metrics happening with a shift from one to the other? So we've had to totally take a step back and revisit both our sector focus, then a much more holistic approach on an account-based approach, and then measuring the metrics on the conversion. And that's taken a rather rigorous and uh, a dramatic yeah. shift in our approach. Can I add also just on, I mean, I think first of all, George and Daniel said so many really important things. And, you know, being in a position where you can be flexible, where you're willing to make a change, go after new markets, leave markets, um, you know, having that courage and bravery and, and acting quickly. We talked about um, And I think, Daniel, your point about, you know, are we even, do we even have a CRM that reflects the things that we know we should be measuring? Or is it, you know, is it built for purpose? Um, I think those things are all really important. When we look at where sales is going, I, I think the reality is customers are going to continue to be as informed as we are, if not more. 75% of the decision is made before they engage us. So we need to figure out how to nurture relationships earlier and just be able to be close to customers. Um, otherwise, you know, and how do we draw them in so that, you know, what's the courting process like so that they really do know us before those RFPs and bids are issued or prices are asked for. There's going to continue to be remote working. So that means there's a shift in sales roles, you know, most organizations are going to employ more SDRs, fewer field-based reps. Um, so trying to decide how to serve those customers, we're going to create more blended roles in sales. You know, whilst we do still need people, I'm totally with you, George, hunters and farmers, because um, people have different aptitudes and, and interests. At the same time, roles are going to blend a bit more. And, you know, we see stronger definitions around sales enablement, um, revenue operations, et cetera. But at the same time, we see people who are taking broader roles that encompass more things because we have to, because sales is getting downsized like everything else. And we're going to continue right. to see more tools that utilize artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, the implementation of RPA, freeing up, you know, higher skills, 
removing administration, doing some of our thinking for us so that we can spend the, the costly time of engaging the customer directly um, in the most efficient way and, and drive those conversions or, or whatever it is. Those are some of the things that I'm seeing at least. Um, I'd, I'd be curious if the gentlemen uh, on the call are also seeing those things, but it, it, it's definitely a time of change. Absolutely. So I would agree with you, uh, Tamara, that it is definitely a time of change. My take on the future is I'm actually really bullish on it. Um, I think that the last six months, people have been adjusting to what our new reality is. And um, I think, and I'm, I'm really hopeful, even though the word hope is not a strategy, as we all agree, um, <laughs> that, uh, that um, you know, going into which what is my end of first quarter uh, going into the second quarter um, it's going to uh, be you know people are, are ready to move forward into to work especially coming out of the summer holidays um, the other comments I wanted to make was we as a company have adjusted and we did this a couple of ways uh, in a couple of comments that I heard um, compelling event it actually is something that's in our sales force and something that I uh, require each one of my reps to have filled out, which is always kind of a head scratcher uh, on uh, compelling events. It, it really is. And it seems to be something that they struggle with, quite frankly. So there is an education process, even with very tenured reps. Um, so I, I think that's important. The other thing is something that uh, Tamara, you mentioned earlier about kind of black space and thinking about it and planning. Uh, one of the things that we put into place was we have a named account paradigm for each one of our account executives. And inside of that named account paradigm, they're to have 10 focused accounts per quarter. Um, and within those 90 days, they either make them customers and they come off the focused account list they engage with them um, and they continue on or they drop them. And what that does is helps us to bring in the new business and to have this constant uh, rotation of going through and at the end of the year, making sure that all hundred accounts that they're assigned are, are basically covered and we've either DQ'd them, moved them into a deal or we're in a deal with them. And we also changed the comp plan to reflect that. So we are giving an extra spiff to those of, of you know, within the company that are getting new customers signed. Um, so those things all combined were, was in preparation of the change that we saw coming down. And our fiscal year ended the end of June. So it was from a timing perspective that got rolled out in July. So, and it's been very well received. So that's the way that we're looking at our fiscal year 21. And those are the changes that we made as, as an organization to tackle them. I hope oh, I still have Super interesting. Tell it single. Sounds as though you will, Michael. It sounds as though the plan is good. At least you, you've articulated it very well, at least. So on that, on that merit, you'll definitely still have a job if that's the case. <laughs> thank, thank you for that. I could just come to you leaders and, and find a job if worse came to worse. Um, yeah, I'd are. hire you. I'd hire you. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm just very wary of time here, guys. I just want to see if there's any questions uh, from the audience. Um, just bear with me a second. I'll take a look now. Um, I don't see any questions come in. 
So guys, really, it's been a very, very interesting conversation that we've had today. I've taken a couple of key takeaways while each of you were speaking there. And it's, you know, I, I, I think a lot of it's been around, uh, like Tamara started with the top of the funnel. You know, how much engagement are you getting at the top of the funnel? Are you hitting the right people on that specific account? And then we also spoke about account-based selling. So George mentioned about account-based selling and also Michael now in your approach as well, you're also doing a formal level of, of account-based selling there. And within each of those accounts, you've got your list of accounts and then you're also looking at engagement points across all of those different accounts. So whether or not they're going to opportunity phase or not, if they're not, then understanding why not. Um, but like one of the key things that's, that's, that stuck out to me across this entire session was, you know, understanding your pipeline through data-fueled gut. Is, is a note that I that I put down here. Um, and I think that really sums it up, you know, it's being able to have an overview of all of the opportunities that you have in your pipeline, was at the same time taking your experience in terms of how to probably move them forward, but also at the same time being, getting that alarm notification when things aren't maybe moving in the right direction, and that's where you lean on the data. So um, that's been my key takeaway. And uh, guys, I've really, really enjoyed speaking with you today. So thank you all very much for coming on. Um, I wish you all the best and a, a very successful end of Q3 and uh, start of Q4, yeah? Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Yeah. Appreciate oh, it. Thank you. Thank very you. much. Uh, Bye, everyone. Appreciate, appreciate everyone's comments. Yeah. Absolutely. No problem. And just, and just before we finish up, just to let everybody know, uh, we'll be running this series again next week. So please tune in, same time, same place. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you.